Matthew 9, verse 1 to 17. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire money, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the, wine, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins, and both are preserved. I invite Paul now to come and open the word for us. Um, as mentioned, um, he's from up the road in Beecroft, and is currently our interim moderator. And Paul will be opening the word for us um, over the next four weeks, over the next couple of chapters of Matthew. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Um, thanks for the uh, opportunity to come and share with you tonight and uh, for another three weeks as well as we work our way through uh, Matthew chapters uh, 9 through 10. We are literally next door neighbours with the uh, um, COVID restrictions currently on at the moment. It took me less than three minutes to get here door to door. Uh, so uh, it's great to be able to come and uh, share with you uh, tonight. Uh, let me pray and then we're going to dive into this uh, passage together. Heavenly Father, as we come to think about your word together now, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see, that you would open our ears to hear, and that you would open our minds to perceive and to understand the things that are in your word that are for us tonight. And Lord, help us uh, to take uh, encouragement from things that you want to encourage us with. 
Help us to hear the challenge of things that you are challenging us about. And Lord, help us to find hope in those things that you uh, want us to trust in, both for for now and for our future. And so, Lord, uh, just uh, open your word with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. What is our greatest problem? Well, let me give you some suggestions from the news just the last couple of days. Uh, While some countries are getting on with vaccination and uh, keeping ahead of the curve, uh, in other countries, like one of our near neighbours, Indonesia, the virus is becoming wildly out of control. Millions of people infected, hundreds of thousands seriously ill, and many thousands are even dying. Here in Sydney, we've been patting ourselves now on the back for months about what a great job we've been doing uh, with keeping the the virus under control, and now we find ourselves under lockdown for a couple of weeks. Is the coronavirus our greatest problem? Iran has just appointed a a new uh, bunch of leaders to their government, and they've indicated they're actually keen to get back to uh, building nuclear enrichment plants. Uh, It seems like that they are really serious about developing nuclear weapons. The United Nations is worried. Even China and Russia are worried. Is nuclear warfare our greatest problem? We're having a pretty cold winter this year, seems to be much colder than I remember from last year. Uh, North America at the moment is in the grip of its hottest and driest summer on record. Uh, Dams are down to the lowest level that people can ever remember. Uh, Islands in the Pacific Ocean are disappearing underwater. Ice in the Arctic has melted to the point they're talking about uh, opening up shipping channels between uh, Asia and Europe across the top of Canada. Is climate change our greatest problem? Australia seems to be struggling to put winning sports teams on the world stage the last couple of years. It's interesting to see what happens at the Olympics coming up soon. But whether it's cricket or rugby union or soccer or whatever, pick your sport, it's been pretty lean times if you're a diehard fan. Is sporting mediocrity our greatest problem? Or perhaps it's those few issues that are a little closer to home that rate for you. Uh, This is the months where Big W and Kmart like to get out their big toy catalogues to encourage you to start spending hundreds of dollars on toys for your kids for Christmas. Um, Maybe you've had a a little person at home pestering you for the, the thing that they want next, the latest game console, the electric guitar, or even iPhones and, and other gadgets. Or maybe it's you. I need a new bathroom, a new figure, a new job, a new car. Is our greatest problem a lack of stuff? Or maybe it's less frivolous things. You're unemployed. No money, no reason to get up in the morning, and you need a job. Or you're lonely, and you need someone to share your life with. Or you're sick and you really need healing, or in pain, and you need relief. Or your kids are mixed with the wrong crowd and they need to find some good friends. They're all big, real problems that lots of us are grappling with. But is our ultimate problem unemployment, or loneliness, or sickness, or pain, or unhelpful relationships? Well, as important as all those things are, Jesus would say, Our greatest problem is none of those things. 
Our greatest problem is our sin and alienation that it brings from God. And our greatest need is forgiveness. We need mercy more than we need mobility. We need mercy more than we need mates or money or motorbikes. Let me show you what I mean. We're in Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus has just arrived back in his hometown of Capernaum. He's been out and about healing people, calming storms, casting out demons. And words got around. People in the neighborhood have heard all the stuff that Jesus has been up to. He pulls up in the boat on the sand and the crowds gather almost immediately. With all the great needs we've talked about, all wanting Jesus to do something about them. And then there's this one guy that Matthew zooms down in on who's paralyzed. Can't even make his own way down there to meet Jesus. He needs his mates to carry him on a mat. I mean, it's obvious what his greatest need is, isn't it? His ultimate problem, it's there for everyone to see. And everyone watching Jesus and this paralyzed man knew the same thing. They look at Jesus and Jesus looks down at the man. The man looks up at Jesus. His friends look down at Jesus. Everyone leans forward in their chairs. They're absolutely sure they know what Jesus is going to say next. Fix the ultimate problem for this guy. Get up and walk. There's a hush. And Jesus says instead, it's there for us in verse 2, he saw their faith, the man and his friends, and he says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's consider the first part of that sentence. Take heart. Literally, it's be courageous. Be courageous. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, being scared would be something this guy had had plenty of experience with. Paralyzed, helpless, exposed to any and every danger, sunburn, boiling water, animals, thieves, fire, completely powerless to really do anything about any of those things and to defend himself. Completely dependent on his friends to look after him. And Jesus tells him to be courageous. Which there'd be some hope of if he'd been healed, if his legs worked again, and he could defend himself or run away. But what's forgiveness got to do with it? How is that going to help him be courageous to overcome all the things that he's afraid of? Since when are sins more dangerous than shriveled legs? I mean, imagine the crowd. What on earth's forgiveness got to do with it? It's healing this man needs. Any fool can see that. He can't even walk. But somehow for Jesus, the big thing is eternity. The big thing is where do you stand with God? Which is a whole lot more significant than being able to stand simply for this life. Somehow for Jesus... The lame man needs mercy more than mobility, forgiveness more than fitness, restored relationship with God more than running races. Somehow for Jesus, there's something more fearful than danger from animals or sunburn or insects or thieves or whatever else. 
It's being in danger from the righteous judgment of a holy God. And when you get that danger sorted, then there's real reason to be courageous. Your perspective on life changes when you're in a restored relationship with the creator of the universe and the judge of all humanity. The one who holds every one of your heartbeats in his hand who orders every breath of your lungs, who's planned every minute of your eternity. Getting right with him is reason for courage. Everything else just falls into place and assumes a different priority, a different importance after that. Getting right with God is fixing the ultimate problem. It's true for this guy we meet in the story, And it's true for you, too. So let me ask you, have you turned to Jesus to fix up your relationship with God? There's nothing more important than that. Well, at this point in the story, we move our attention to some other people in the crowd. Some teachers of the law. They listen to all Jesus has to say that he forgives sins, and a light bulb goes on in their brain. Hang on a minute. Did he just say he forgives his sins? Yeah, he definitely said, your sins are forgiven. But only God can forgive sins. He's the only one every uh, sin is ultimately committed against. Who does this Jesus guy think he is? Your sins are forgiven. I mean, surely that's blasphemy. That's standing in the place of God. It's making yourself equal to him. That's what these teachers of the law are thinking. And they were almost right. To claim to forgive sins is to make yourself equal to God. And that's exactly who Jesus thinks he is. But it's only blasphemy if Jesus doesn't have the authority to say it. And as you've been working your way through Matthew's gospel, and particularly last week in Matthew chapter 8, you would have seen the authority that Jesus has to calm storms, to cast out demons, the authority that is there in Jesus' words. And to forgive someone's sins is just as authoritative as calming a storm or casting out a demon. It's authoritative because it's claiming the clout of God himself to forgive sins. Well, of course, Jesus works out exactly what these guys are thinking and then has an object lesson for them. Verse 5, anyone can say they forgive sins. I mean, you know, crazy people and con artists included. But when they say it, you've got no way of knowing whether they can actually deliver unless they could show you in some concrete way, show you some proof, which is what Jesus is going to do. Verse 5. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. A sentence that's just as easy to say as your sins are forgiven. But, of course, everyone can tell pretty quickly whether you can back it up or not, can't they? 
It separates the pretenders from the contenders pretty quickly. And of course, Jesus can back up the talk. Verse 7, and the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. The crowd are amazed and the teachers are silenced. But I wonder what it was that amazed the crowd. We're told that it was because God had given such authority to men, but how did they see that authority? I'm guessing it was the healing of his legs. They saw that as the greatest miracle, as the greatest need, rather than forgiving sins. But is that the way Jesus saw it? What was the greatest miracle? Legs working, broken nerves firing, wasted muscles contracting, and a man standing up. Or a heart made alive, a black conscience cleansed, a broken relationship with the God of the universe restored, a perishing soul given life. For Jesus, that's the real miracle. That's what really counts. It's what he did first. It's what this guy needed most. The thing that would last for eternity rather than for months or years. It was certainly the most difficult thing, the most costly thing. A paralyzed body is simply fixed by a word, but forgiven sins would take all that Jesus had. It would take his life, his complete obedience, his life for our life, his punishment for our punishment. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that healing is unimportant. That would be taking no notice of what's going on in these chapters at all. Jesus heals the paralyzed man just like he heals the leper or the sick servant or the mother-in-law because Jesus has compassion. Because his kingdom is about restoration, restoring what sin and rebellion have broken. Because he loves to reduce suffering and show love. But it's restoration that will only be complete in eternity. At the moment, Jesus' physical healing here is only a shadow of the restoration that God's got in store. When there'll be no more pain or crying or sickness or paralysis or death. But for that to happen, it's got to begin with the restoration of relationship with God. The most compassionate thing the most loving thing, the hardest thing, is to forgive sins, to forgive the paralyzed man's sins. And as Jesus moves on in his travels, we see two very different responses to that offer of Jesus. First of all, we meet Matthew, the tax collector. There he is, sitting in his booth on the side of the road, collecting the taxes as people go past, counting his piles of money as he whiles away the time. And Jesus walks up to him. You can just imagine Matthew holding out his hand, expecting to receive you know, the tax from whatever it is that Jesus has been buying and selling in the marketplace in town. But instead of offering him money, Jesus offers him mercy. Follow me, he says, verse 9. And Matthew has a choice. What's his greatest problem? Not enough money or not enough mercy? 
he gets up, leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. And the words he uses to describe what happens suggests he sees it as just as great a miracle as what Jesus did for the paralyzed man. What does it say Matthew did at the end of verse 9? Jesus said, follow me. And what's Matthew do? He got up. Literally says he arose. It's exactly the same word that described what the paralyzed man did after he was healed. Because they're both miracles. And Matthew sees this one, Jesus, as fixing his ultimate problem. The other reaction comes a little bit later. Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. There's all sorts of people who want to find mercy, who recognise what their greatest need is, tax collectors and sinners. But there's the leaders again, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in verse 11. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? You know, why doesn't he just write them off? Doesn't he care about his reputation? Well, they might be sinners, says Jesus, but at least they recognise that they've got a problem and they've come to the right place to deal with it. The right place for a sick person is at the doctor's, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's the attitude that Jesus wants above anything else, to recognise your greatest need, your ultimate problem, and then turn to Dr. Jesus to deal with it. And it's what the Jewish religious leaders aren't doing. They reckon they're fine. There's no need, no problem. And Jesus has a word for them. Verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and do some homework, he says. And I did the homework for you tonight. Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament, from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It's in the middle of a long section where God is pleading with his people to turn to him truly from the heart. Back in Hosea's time, they'd turned away from him. They'd been worshipping and following idols. And as a result, there is injustice and greed all through the land. And God has sent them invaders from the surrounding nations. There's been sickness. There's been famine. All to make them to wake up to themselves. All to get them to turn around and uh, repent and trust in, in him. To return to him. And the people think it's a, an easy thing to come back to God. That he'll be happy with just some cheap words and uh, some surface actions. But have a listen uh, to Hosea 6 verse 1. Listen to what the people say. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rain, like the spring rains that water the earth. 
But listen to what God thinks of them and that attitude. Verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God is saying, don't just speak about repentance. Don't just turn up at the holy place and offer meaningless sacrifices. I'm not interested in external appearances. We need to get to the heart to recognise your problem. Make your repentance real. Show that you've understood mercy by showing it in your relationships. And that's what the leaders weren't doing with Jesus. No mercy, no humility, and no forgiveness. Just harsh judgmentalism. And so Jesus says to them, go away and think about it. Learn what it means. Because that's the attitude I can work with. A recognition of your greatest need. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew and his mates got it. The paralysed man got it. The Jewish leaders didn't have a clue. What about you? What's all this have to say about us? What does it have to say to us? Well, the first thing to recognise is that Jesus' priorities haven't changed. What was important then is still important now. The ultimate problem then is still the ultimate problem now. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Especially if you're struggling with some sort of chronic illness, that what you really need to do is to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need physical healing. You need to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need a long life or a new job. You need to repent and have your sins forgiven more than you need that holiday or that spouse or that new house. If you haven't been honest and humble and repented and allowed Jesus to be boss, then nothing else matters. So how does this work itself out in the things we do? What about prayer? What sort of things do you pray about? What sort of things are you determined and committed and regular about praying for? Reflects your priorities, doesn't it? I know that every night since before our kids were born, my parents have prayed for them. They pray they'll grow up continuing to love and to serve the Lord Jesus. Which is a much higher priority than health or wealth or any of the other things that we fill our prayers with. What are your prayers filled with? Prayers for yourselves or prayers for others? Are you praying for our missionaries, for the gospel to be powerful in people's lives? Are you praying for your family and your neighbours and your workmates that they'll grow in their understanding of Jesus and their need to repent and to turn to him? 
Or are your prayers filled with all sorts of other priorities instead? Or how you use your money? We say with our heads that the gospel is our number one priority. But is it backed up with your wallet? Where does giving for missionaries or Christian books or resources or your church family fit in? Do you pinch pinch pennies when your kids ask to go on a Christian camp? Or is that a priority? And what about us here as a church family? There are lots of good things that we could be doing. But unless we're telling people the gospel, the good news about repentance and forgiveness and a relationship with Jesus, then we aren't doing our job. I mean, we could spend a lot of time and money and effort on finding jobs for the unemployed. Some churches are doing that. And there's some great government funding that could help do that. We could run injection rooms for addicts, housing for poor people. We could do food parcels and movie nights and festivals, all sorts of things we could do. Some things, no doubt, here at Epping you are doing. But if we're not calling on people to repent and turn to Jesus, it doesn't matter how many good things we do, we're not really helping where it counts. We're not actually fixing anyone's ultimate problem. We need to be a church whose number one priority is the same as Jesus. We need to be Christians who preach the gospel before all else, proclaim it to each other and to outsiders. We need to be a group of God's people where we learn how to be doing that. Learn God's priorities and how he thinks about his world. Where we're building each other up, encouraging each other so we can be taking these priorities to others. What Jesus has done in his life, death and resurrection, making it possible for us through repentance, to have forgiveness of sins and have the hope of eternal life. It's our greatest need. It's the greatest need for the world. It's what Jesus was on about. And it's what we need to be on about too. Let me pray and ask for God's help as we try to do that. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, tonight again for your son Jesus, our saviour, and for the gospel, the good news that Jesus, through his life, death and resurrection, has made it possible for our sins to be forgiven, for us uh, to be welcomed as uh, sons and daughters uh, into the kingdom of God and to have the hope of eternal life. Lord, as people who have uh, ourselves received that forgiveness and the new life that results from that, Lord, help us to be people who grow in that, who are being equipped by your word so that we can love and serve each other in our church family, but also so that beyond the four walls of, of church, we can uh, share that good news with people around us and point people towards Jesus the one who makes it possible for our ultimate problem to be dealt with, to fix uh, the problem of sin and our alienation from God so that we can be friends with God both for, for now but indeed into eternity. 
Lord, help us uh, as we seek to love and serve you as your people here in Epping, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.